Life is often full of huge letdowns, major disappointments. We put so much hope in something, we get so excited for it, only to be slapped in the face by heartbreaking reality. Maybe your preferred presidential candidate didn't win, or he did win, and he doesn't keep his promises. Your Minnesota Vikings make it to the NFC Championship game every eight years and blow it. Geraldo opens Al Capone's vault. Anyone remember that? What a big letdown. It was empty. Or Star Wars, episode one. <laughs> yes, I'm glad that worked. You think your dreams are about to come true. Your, all your desires are about to be satisfied. And in a moment, you are left feeling empty, perhaps hopeless. For some people, these disappointments can lead to greater resolve to make sure that never happens again in your life. Others, you just feel defeated. You give up and say, what's the point of putting your hope in anything ever again? Either put the weight of the world on your shoulders or detach from the world altogether. Neither of these is healthy and neither will give you the satisfaction that your heart so longs for. Today we're returning to our series after a brief Easter and Palm Sunday break to, our, to the book of Matthew and take a look at a text that might cause one of these two responses in yourself. This threat of huge disappointment might lead you to feel like you need to try even harder to make sure that never happens or leave you feeling hopeless as though you've got no chance. But there is a better way and we will find that way together today in Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 to 23. Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 to 23. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. <coughs> Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But those, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, how many people in this life 
are expecting to hear a welcome when they stand in your presence and are in for a rude awakening. God, may that not be any of us. May you use this message today to open our eyes, clear out our ears, soften our hearts, and give us peace, assurance that we are on the right path. God, use this message. May your spirit enable my words and enable my hearers, that we could rejoice in confidence that we are known by Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> Mark Twain supposedly once said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. He's referring to these things in the Bible that you read they cause you to tremble. It's so clear. There's no doubt that if this is true, you are in trouble. We might disagree here and there about some obscure things, how an Old Testament text fits with some New Testament text, causes a little confusion. But then there are these texts that cause no confusion, just conviction. I don't know which ones Mark Twain had in mind when he said that, but these verses from the end of the Sermon on the Mount cause that same kind of response in my soul. This is a warning that keeps pastors up at night. Might keep many of you up at night thinking about your beloved friends or family who say they know Jesus. How many people do I preach to that the word will fall on deaf ears? How many people are under our care who will come face to face with Jesus on that final day and he will say, I never knew you. I want to do everything that I possibly can so that you, my friends, will be prepared for that last day. So the words from Christ on that last day will be, well done, good and faithful servant. The stakes are high. Your eternal life is dependent upon where you set your hope today. And the text warns us, few people find this right path. There are obstacles everywhere along the way. And we can even deceive ourselves. This is Jesus' final plea to his hearers. He just expounds for three chapters in the Sermon on the, on the Mount, explaining the law, how the law pointed to him, ex explaining his identity so we understand who he is how we can obey the law ourselves and love others. And now he gets to this exhortation portion of his sermon where he says, don't walk away simply with a collection of theological truths to debate with one another, but he calls us to action because of these truths we've heard. The call of Christ on your life requires a visible response to what he has said. If you don't become a doer of the word, my friends, the consequences are disastrous. So the tech warning of this text is do not be deceived into only hearing his word, but in Christ become doers of the word. Don't be deceived into simply hearing the word, but in Christ become a doer of the word. So our outline will follow the three sections of this text. First, We'll see, or we'll see in these three sections the types of deception that we might fall prey to. First, we'll see deception by the world. 
the crowds pressing in on us, and then deception through the devil and his false guides that he places along the way, and finally being deceived by our own flesh. Deception by yourself. This three-part deception is actually found in other places in Scripture as well. Jesus tells of the parable of the sower and who casts the seeds, and there's three types of seed or soil that it falls upon that lead to no growth. One is where the seed grows up and it's choked out by the cares of the world among the thorns. And then another, the birds fly in and take the seed away. And the third, the soil of self was not deep enough, was not rich enough to nurture that seed and grow. Same three things. Paul says also in Ephesians 2, that we are born dead in trespasses and sins and we're kept in that darkness by the world and the devil and the flesh. So Jesus uses these same three warnings at the end of his Sermon on the Mount. Don't be deceived, but in Christ become doers of the word. So let's start with the first section. Don't be deceived by the world. Read along with me in verses 13 and 14 again. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So this section presents two ways a person can live their life. There's a wide road and the narrow road. This two ways model was a common teaching tool in the ancient world. Greeks actually used this, Greek philosophers, to say the narrow way is the way of Greek enlightened thinking. And how stupid are the regular people out there who don't think like we do? But Moses used it as well. Moses said at the end of Deuteronomy, after giving the law on the mountain before they head into the promised land, he says, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. You have two paths to choose from. Choose wisely the path that honors God and brings life. And so we've seen how Matthew already is recasting Jesus as a more faithful Israel, a more faithful Moses. And here Jesus shows himself to be a greater Moses on the mountain, giving the law and giving the same warning. But this time the warning isn't just about a piece of land that they're about to enter into. He warns of eternal life and death to come. The scary part of this warning, though, about the two paths is that neither of the roads is labeled with clear highway department approved signage. You don't have the wide road that says road to destruction. Anyone on this path, you're going to destruction. And here's the narrow way, road to life. Be encouraged, you're on the right path. Everyone on the wide path thinks they're going somewhere good, that they're going to end up with eternal blessings. They think it'll turn out all right in the end. The crowds are pressing in on this road. Everyone is on this wide path. The confusion from all the different perspectives in the world makes it difficult. It's disorienting. Maybe I'll just go along with the crowds and everyone is pressing in, going downstream. Which other way can you go? And the gate's so wide that nobody even realizes they've entered. 
Everyone's just patting each other on the back. Hey, we're, we're on our way together. We're all unified. But they're on their way to destruction. Alternatively, the narrow gate is small. It's so small that it might actually require you to get down on your knees and crawl through it. You might get dirty crawling through it, or you might get mocked for making yourself look so foolish. This path is difficult. It's narrow. It's full of obstacles and dangers, steep cliffs and ditches that you could fall in and hurt yourself if you go astray. You need to fight to stay on the narrow path and keep your eyes on the prize. This is the path of the Christian life, my friends. It's not easy. Jesus promises that it will be full of suffering. And we encourage one another with theological truth that might seem empty at first, but oh, it's such a treasure when the rocky parts of the path come up. The world's not going to encourage you on the narrow path for being a faithful Christian. They're going to mock you for it. And you might stumble and fall once in a while. You might get dirty serving other people and look foolish for following Christ when it doesn't seem cool. And you might feel alone sometimes because there's hardly about anybody else on the path. Being a doer of the word is a difficult walk. Don't be deceived by the world, by what's easy and popular. If you find that your life is going pretty well and looks a lot like your neighbors, maybe you want to ask yourself, am I even on the right path or am I on the road to destruction? But you may wonder, if few people find this path, how in the world do we actually get on it? Do you just trip and, oh, look, I'm on the narrow path all alone? Well, fortunately, God sends people to be guides. He sends pastors or maybe sends you into the lives of other people to be a guide. But not everyone who claims to be a guide is trustworthy. So let's look back at these guides in verses 15 to 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So all along both paths, there's guides telling us you're going the right way. Hang in there. But if you're on the wide road, you've got guides who seem to be like they're good people. They're helping you out. They teach that everyone is going the right direction. Hang in there, everyone. All roads are leading to the same place. We're all going to get there eventually. They seem really helpful. They're calming everyone down as the crowds press in, as life gets difficult. They're really nice people. How can they possibly be wrong? But Jesus warns that though they might have a nice outward appearance, they are dead wrong. These messengers of Satan might seem like they're on your team, but if you follow them, they will only cause you harm. 
In the Old Testament, Israel too had to deal with many false prophets. They longed for someone to bring them the word of God in these prophets. They said they had a word from God. They would find themselves in the highest places. They loved to be alongside the kings and tell the kings which direction they should go, who to fight, who to avoid. They really liked the attention they would get when someone would come up to them and say, oh, prophet, please tell me, what does God have to say to me? But these false prophets didn't really have a word from God. These are the people that are crying out, peace, everyone, peace, as God sends the Assyrian army to surround the city to bring destruction. These false prophets brought the downfall of Israel. But it's not just an ancient problem. Those people are just stupid. They didn't know who, who was trustworthy. They just kind of have simple minds. That's not true. We have the same problem in our world. Even in the church, there are people who are claiming to be spiritual guides who appear to be really nice, thoughtful people. They really gave me some encouragement this week. But they're leading crowds away from Christ. We have to be careful for them. They're not wearing signs. Just like along the road, there's not signs. The false guides, too, don't have signs saying, warning, warning, false prophet here. These are persuasive people. They have slick presentations that are really convincing. They're really influential, large crowds following them. The devil has strategically disguised his own minions as angels of light. They are dangerous. So how then do we know? How do we know if we're on the right path? How do we know if we're following the right guides? If they're dressed as wolves in sheep's clothing? Well, Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. We'll come back to this to examine the good fruits to wrap up the sermon. But here he's saying, you'll know the bad teachers by their bad fruits. You might not know from first glance or even listening to a sermon or two or some theological message or inspirational talk. You need to examine this person's life over the long haul, really. How long does it take if you plant a seed, a tomato seed in February? For you to actually get fruit, it might take until August, September before you're eating tomatoes. If you plant an apple seed, it might take years before you see fruit. My family was just watching yesterday a, a documentary about ancient Greeks who loved their olive oil. And they said that when you planted an olive seed, you, you wouldn't get to see any of the fruit. It would be the following generations. So we need to be careful to examine the fruit. How do we do that? Well, over the long term, their intentions will be made known. You'll start to see the priorities of these teachers. Eventually, you'll see that they're just in it for the praise, for a nice pat on the back to puff themselves up. You'll see the results of their guidance in other people's lives. Look at all the people that follow them. Does it look like they're just going down the wide road? Eventually, these works of the flesh will become apparent in the lives of false guides. The sheep suit will eventually wear out, and you'll see their wolf interior. So don't be too quick to trust any teacher. And I say that knowing that I 
put myself at risk as well. That you should be careful to examine my life, examine my family and the fruits of my labors before you believe anything that I say. Examine the teaching and the life of any guide to see if they're connected with Christ and His righteousness before following that guide too far down the wrong path. But if it's difficult to find our way onto the narrow path and any guides that we have might not be trustworthy, it looks like all we're left with is our own wisdom, our own intellect, our own guidance. Who can we trust other than ourselves? The world says, follow your heart. Well, I guess that's good advice, isn't it? If I can't trust anyone else. Friends, Jesus says that we can even deceive ourselves. Return to verses 21 and 20 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is a thought that should humble every one of us. This is a thought that the longer I think about it, I actually start to get physically ill. There are people heading into eternity that we know thinking they're on the right path, thinking they're following the right people, thinking they're doing the right thing and they are in for a rude awakening. God, I hope it's not any of you guys. When they get to the end, Jesus is going to say, depart from me. And it will be too late. There's no getting on the narrow path then. But these people think they're doing the right thing. They're so sincere. How can Jesus reject them? See what they, from the text, what they cite as evidence of their own genuineness. First, you can see them passionately calling Jesus Lord. Lord, Lord. What does it mean to call Jesus Lord? In the context, it it says, Jesus says that he's the judge. So they're submitting to him. Yes, you are Lord. You have the right to be there. There's kind of a theological statement here. And the repetition, Lord, Lord, is a Hebrew way of emphasizing. It's their exclamation exclamation point. Lord, Lord, I'm passionate about you being in charge. We can even see that this person apparently lives their life doing things in Jesus' name, doing things claiming to be a Christian. He says all the right things. He has some intellectual assent to some basic Christian ideas. But there's something vital missing. Jesus doesn't know him. This professing believer goes on to cite evidence. Here's proof of my relationship with Jesus. He says he's prophesied. He's cast out demons. He's done incredible, mighty works all in Jesus' name. So he maybe knew his Bible. He brought the words of God to other people. 
He brought healing to people who were sick and downcast. He saw wonderful, powerful works of God, people following him. And yet Jesus says these are no proof of a relationship with him. All the charismatic activity in the world is no evidence of being in the family of God. So how can we know? This person claims to be a Christian. They claim to know Christian things and do Christian things. He goes to church sometimes. Maybe he can explain the gospel message, but he hasn't believed it himself. He wears a cross necklace, has some spiritual experience. Everyone says, he's a really nice guy. But there's still something missing. Non-believers can do any of these things. God has used pagans and donkeys to speak his word before. Casting out demons could be done by Satan himself, only proof that his kingdom will fall. Recognizing the spiritual world and engaging in it is no proof that your name is written in heaven. Satan can pull off some pretty spectacular tricks. And yet after a life filled with some doctrinal truth speaking and spiritual power, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness lawlessness. This life filled with apparent good things, spiritual goodness, Jesus calls lawless. We can do good things in our life, but Paul tells us in Romans, anything that's not done in faith is sin. Whatever's not done trusting in Christ is lawlessness. So all we're left with today then is hopelessness, it seems. We can't trust the crowds. We can't trust any teachers. We can't trust ourselves. We're all heading in the wrong direction. Where do we go? How do we know who to trust so that we can get to that point and hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant, instead of depart from me, I never knew you. As I said at the beginning, there's two ways that we can hear this disappointing kind of news and respond wrongly. First, you might hear things like this and say, it's not going to happen to me. I'm going to buckle down, double down on my efforts. I'm going to make sure I am going to do the right things. And that might feel good for a while. You've proved your own worthiness. But that's only going to end in destruction. Wake up, friends. Don't fool yourself. I hate to have to preach a message like this because it's so discouraging. It's not some exciting thing to say that we're just to encourage you. We're all going to be there in heaven and have new bodies because some of you might not. So I encourage you guys, heed Jesus' warning. Repent and put your trust in him today, not in any worldly wisdom or confidence in your own theological Jesus talk or your own good works. Trust in the work of Christ. Well, this warning might also lead you to despair, and I feel like maybe that is a place where many of you might be today. It all just seems hopeless. Who can I trust? I might as well just give up. If we're all blindly walking down the wrong path, we should just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. 
enjoy this life because I don't know if I'll enjoy the next one. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Don't despair. You can have assurance. Jesus wants you to know that you are in his hands and nobody can take you away from him. He doesn't warn us in order that we live every single life, day of our lives in fear, but to tell us there is assurance available for us. First way to have assurance is to simply cling to Christ. The only solid ground that we have, as Jake will preach on next week, is the truth of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Don't look to what you have done, but what to Christ has done. On the cross, he cried, it is finished. Those who are in him, those whom he knows, don't point to their own good works. They don't point to the pastors they followed or the church they've joined. They point to Christ. Find your assurance in the finished work of Christ. Return your wandering, despairing heart to the finished work of Christ. Satisfy your soul in the finished work of Christ. Your assurance first comes from knowing what Christ has already accomplished, and then it will result in fruit in your life today. What might this assurance look like? If the good seed has taken root in good soil in your heart, then you will bear good fruit. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. And in the context, he was saying, you will know bad teachers by their bad fruit. But this can also be assurance for ourselves. You will know if you are on the right path, if you are following good teachers, if you bear fruit in your life. What kind of markers of assurance is this fruit that scattered all over the New Testament? In Matthew 3, verse 8, John the Baptist speaks of fruit of repentance. Is your life marked with repentance when you find sin in your life? Or do you defend yourself? Defend your attitudes and behaviors when someone questions them. There's also the familiar fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. If a person is saved, is genuinely saved, they've repented and put their trust in Christ, this amazing truth, Jesus promises us His Holy Spirit comes down and dwells within you. And then His character, His nature starts to live out through you. And it looks like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. No matter your circumstances, do you find yourself still having this love, this joy, a peace that surpasses all understanding? Do other believers tell you, wow, you've just got this divine love working through you towards others? Which is really the fruit of righteousness. Christ's righteousness working out in you. As Paul says in Philippians 1, your life will be marked with Christ-like behavior, a concern for the things of God, an interest in every part of your life in the things of God. And this will steadily increase in your life through what Paul says in Romans 6.22, the fruit of sanctification and endurance unto the end. 
You are looking to Christ. You keep your eyes on the heavenly prize and you will walk straight down the narrow path and you will look around and say, I'm doing it. I can't believe it. He's carrying me along. If you set your eyes on Christ, you can be confident you are on the right path. And finally, friends, Hebrews 13, verse 5, speaks of the fruit of praise. Is your life lived to God's glory? Does praise flow from your lips in everything you do, whether you eat or drink? You give thanks to God for every good gift. A heart overflowing with praise to God is a marker, an indication of a life lived on the narrow path. This is a life of assurance, friends. Some people need to be shaken, woken up to realize you're on the wide path and guided to the narrow path. But some of you also need to be comforted. So I pray today, friends, that you wouldn't beat yourself up if you are in Christ, but you would have assurance. You can know Christ is in you and you are in Christ when you look to his finished work on the cross and you see his work continuing through you in your own life. Be assured then that you, that Christ knows you. You are on the narrow path. And when you keep your eyes set on him, his Holy Spirit will be your faithful guide. Let's pray. God, would you give every single person in this room assurance, new life, a heart that cries, Abba, Father, I know you love me. Will you care for me? We can only do such things when your spirit is at work in us. And would you use all of us, God, not just Jake and me as pastors, but all of us to be faithful guides in one another's lives. God, thank you for this church, these people who love one another and care for one another. Would you help us to bear fruit and encourage fruit bearing in one another that you would receive praise from every single one of our lips for the glory of Christ and our satisfaction in him. Amen.